Hello, and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Professor Miguel Tinker Salas, Leslie Farmer Professor of Latin American Studies at Pomona College and author of Venezuela, What Everyone Needs to Know, and The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture, and Society in Venezuela. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Of course. So the first question, the big one, what exactly is happening in Venezuela? What is happening is that on January 23rd, the opposition uh, launched uh, a, an effort to uh, unseat um, Nicolás Maduro, who had been elected in elections during May 20th. They contend that those elections uh, were tainted uh, and that therefore his election was not valid or legitimate. Um, and they did this by um, having a, a member of the National Con- Assembly declare himself president. And that was Juan Guaido. Uh, and as soon as he declared himself president, um, the U.S. recognized him. And so did uh, a series of other countries in Latin America and in Europe. Uh, so that it was very obvious that at one level, this was very well planned. It was not something that happened spontaneously. Um, and that effort has continued through the, through the last uh, weeks, uh, culminating in, in uh, uh, the events of, of the last week in February, uh, in which there was an effort to bring in humanitarian aid into the country, um, by, which some would argue was a, a, an effort also at unseating Maduro. Uh, but this crisis has many roots, and we can talk about those in, in any kind of context, whether they're political, whether it's about oil, whether it's about uh, the role that Venezuela has played, both historically or in the contemporary arena. Let's start off by kind of clarifying something that's very contested, the 2018 election. Of course, the U.S. alleges that it was illegitimate. Um, the opposition largely boycotted it. Um, what is the truth of the electoral process there and the legitimacy of Maduro? Well, the opposition claims that those elections were tainted, but they, uh, and they claim that because they, they assert that the National Electoral Council, uh, the Comisión Nacional Electoral, um, was tainted uh, and favored Maduro. Um, so that, and also because uh, the government, uh, through its various uh, agencies, had declared two candidates no longer eligible. Uh, one had been Leopoldo Lopez, who had been uh, under house arrest, previously in jail and then under house arrest, for his activities in a 2014 effort to unseat Maduro, but it was called La Salida, the exit, um, which uh, relied on significant street protests, but also open violence um, against the government that caused the destruction of, of schools, of hospitals, uh, and did se- severe damage. Um, then there was the, the disqualification of Henry Enrique Capriles uh, for purportedly receiving uh, foreign funds while governor of Miranda. So that they claimed that that in itself, uh, the government was selecting who they wanted to run against. Now, the question about the CNE is a bit more complicated because the opposition had no problem um, running for governors uh, previously when under the auspices of the CNE, and they actually won uh, several of those governorships. So there's a, there's a contradiction here in recognizing the National Electoral Council in one setting um, and then saying that in another setting, that same National Electoral Council somehow would favor the government. Uh, so they did not participate. But there was an opposition candidate. His name was Henry Falcón. Um, and he had a, a significant uh, presence and a very strong campaign. Um, and the uh, members of the opposition, particularly the traditional parties, Voluntad Popular, Primera Justicia, Acción Democrática, and others, did not support him. Um, I firmly believe that had they supported him, um, they might have had a very good opportunity uh, to defeat Nicolás Maduro. But they made a choice uh, of an all-or-nothing strategy. Uh, and they made a choice that by then they were really relying on the international pressure to topple Maduro rather than the electoral arena within Venezuela. And what exactly does the opposition stand for? Uh, that's a good question. Um, they're a fragmented group. Um, they are all united in their opposition to Nicolás Maduro uh, and the Chavez uh, legacy. Uh, they're not united on what happens next. They historically have not been united on a unified candidate um, to put up against Nicolás Maduro. And they really have skirted the issue of what is their social or economic program for the country. 
um, they recognize on the one hand um, that the country has changed somewhat, uh, that Chavez uh, actually gained a significant following because of his support of social programs that alleviated poverty uh, and that mitigated difference uh, and brought in marginalized sectors of society. Uh, on the other hand, um, they also want to recoup the Venezuela that they claim they lost in 1998 with the election of Chavez. So they're in a quandary. On the one hand, they recognize uh, that they, they want to recoup that past. On the other, they haven't put forth what their social agenda is. And, and that's why they have a difficulty in winning over many sectors of society that are critical of Maduro, but supportive of the social programs that were initiated under Hugo Chavez. And those programs dealt with housing, with education, with health. Uh, and what they are is critical of Maduro for not uh, fulfilling the promise that was made under the earlier administration. Uh, but they haven't been won over by the opposition completely. It's interesting that the opposition is not really unified on a platform because Juan Guaido has been much more open about what he wants to do. What does he stand for and why does the U.S. support him? We know for sure he stands for regime change um, and has agreed with Trump uh, saying that all options are on the table uh, and he's refused to take the military option off the table. Uh, I've always been insistent that one way Guaido can convince Venezuelans that he's really not simply uh, operating on an international stage and is essentially in many ways um, pursuing a policy very similar to Trump is to say to the Trump administration, look, we appreciate your recognition, but we do not want to be seen as your uh, extension of your foreign policy in Latin America, particularly after the McKay book came out and said, that Trump had talked about as early as 2017, that Venezuela was a country that needed to be invaded because they have oil and they're in our backyard. Um, he could also have said very clearly to John Bolton, we don't want you sending 5,000 troops uh, to Colombia or to use a threat. And he could have said very clearly, we don't want Elliot Abrams, uh, the special envoy for Latin America, for Venezuela, uh, appointed by Trump who has a very, very uh, 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 bloody hand in Central America and covering up human rights violations and in covering up what happened in El Mozote, a massacre in El Salvador. We don't want him associated with us. But instead, he has not done that. Um, so that there is the, there is the, the, the presence of Guaido uh, is in many ways wrapped around an extension of U.S. foreign policy in Venezuela. And that's what many people are concerned about. And that's why they have a difficult time uh, winning over a certain strata of the population in Venezuela. And I think there's a division in the opposition between the all or nothing strategy, that is, we want to take power and we want to eradicate the, the legacy of the Chavez era, and those that recognize that any future in Venezuela will only be achieved by negotiation and by bringing those sides together and discussing how or what are going to be the rules of engagement and how we can achieve a process by which uh, we can govern and we can have social uh, peace while at the same time addressing the poverty and the inequality um, that is so prevalent still in the country. And what is the U.S. history of intervention? What is the U.S. history of meddling in Central and Latin America? Well, we know that that the U and here's the important thing I, I, I want to always underscore, and that is it doesn't matter if they're Democrats or Republicans. When it comes to the exercise of U.S. foreign policy, when it comes to the, the preservation of U.S. privilege in the region, um, whether we go back to 1846 and the U.S.-Mexican War, in which Mexico lost a significant or a chunk of its territory, um, whether we move to Cuba in 1898 uh, with the so-called Spanish-American, which in fact was the Spanish-American-Cuban-Puerto Rican-Philippine War, uh, in which the U.S. Uh, didn't annex, but did establish a protectorate-style relationship with Puerto Rico, with Cuba, and with the Philippines, or whether we go to Nicaragua and Haiti in 1914 um, and the U.S. establishing protectorates, uh, or whether we go to 1902 with the U.S. separation of, of, Col of, Col of Colombia and Panama in order to build the Panama Canal, or whether we move throughout the Caribbean um, in which the U.S. established uh, gov governments that were very much uh, supportive of the U.S., or whether we track what U.S. businesses were doing with United Fruit Company uh, and the ability to topple governments at will that were not supportive, um, we can have we have a long legacy. The U.S. has a long legacy of involvement in the region uh, and of exercising power in a way that marginalized the Latin Americans, in which Latin Americans were seen simply as the backyard. And we're hearing that from Trump now. 
Um, obviously, we can also go as early as 2000, or as late as 2009, uh, when the Obama administration uh, appeared to have greenlighted a coup in Honduras, and Hillary Clinton, in the first edition of her book, um, said that she did everything possible to make sure that Manuel Zelaya did not come back to power. Or we can go to 2004 in Haiti, uh, when the U.S. administration was involved in the removal of Jean, uh, Beltran Aristide in Haiti. Or in 2002, uh, in the coup in Venezuela, which was greenlighted also by the U.S., um, we can go through South America and examples in Argentina, Brazil, um, or the 1953 and 54 in Guatemala, when the USCI was involved in the ouster of uh, uh, Harbins in Guatemala at the behest of Yufco, United Fruit Company. And what have the results of U.S.-sponsored regime change been? How has it affected these countries? It in many ways has has really subverted internal politics because when the U.S. becomes the the arbiter of local politics, um, essentially, then an, an elite class uh, maintains power largely by appealing to those interests. So whether it was Cuba under the Platt Amendment between 1898 and 1934, in which uh, the U.S. intervened multiple times to preserve the political power or the political apparatus, or even Venezuela, where as early as 1930s, because of oil in Venezuela, the political elite recognized that they had to appease the U.S., or they thought they had to appease the U.S. to maintain the economic relationship with that country. And whether it was military governments or whether it was democratic governments, they sought to appease Venezuela. And, and the U.S., and I insist and I argue that Venezuela was in fact, uh, the U.S. was in fact an internal arbiter in the political arena within Venezuela, as important as any political party within Venezuela. Uh, and then it subverts the actual process of politics uh, and really infringes upon any notion of sovereignty, self-determination or autonomy. And could you dig a bit more into Venezuelan history to contextualize what's happening right now? Well, I think the context goes back to the 1914 and the 1922 with the discovery of massive oil deposits. Um, this is concurrently happening at a time in which Mexico is having a revolution um, in 1910 through 1920s, uh, and the U.S. oil companies have been heavily invested um, in, in Mexico. Um, and then all of a sudden, there's these large, de significant deposits uh, in Venezuela. And those oil deposits become uh, very attractive to the British, who are transitioning their navy from coal to oil, to the U.S., uh, who's also doing the same thing. Um, and they, they, in fact, become the, the two largest investors in Venezuela. So that you can talk about the U.S. presence as early as the oil industry, uh, but even earlier. We can go back even into the 19th century. But the key point here is oil. Uh, because in many ways, oil uh, and its Im impact and its influence, both politically and economically and even culturally, um, are so significant in understanding Venezuela. Um, and the U.S. sets about supporting a dictator, Juan Vicente Gomez, who is in power from 1908 to 1935. Um, and then when he dies, even the government of uh, López Contreras, who becomes another general who takes power, um, recognizes, at least on his part, that he wants to appeal to the U.S. or appease the U.S., sends a, a memorandums uh, to the U.S. indicating that nothing's going to change. Subsequent government, Isaís Medina Angarita, uh, did something similar, although they did he did, in fact, have the first oil, significant oil legislation in the country. Um, and subsequent governments that came in power in 45 and 48 likewise sought to appease the U.S., um, and uh, we saw that all the way through 1958. And in Venezuela, that meant the rise of a pacted democracy. When the last dictator, Marcos Perez Jimenez, is ousted, uh, Venezuela enters into a period known as the pacted democracy, in which the Social Democratic Party, Acción Democrática, uh, the Christian Democratic Parties, uh, um, COPEI, and another smaller uh, Social Democratic Party, URD, enter into a pact that essentially excludes the left and progressive sectors and seeks to demobilize them. At the same time, it seeks to appease the military, um, and it agrees to re to re recognize each of these three parties um, to ensure political stability, while at the same time continuing to allow uh, North American corporations to essentially run the oil industry, to repatriate profits. And literally, by 1960s, they were the only country in Latin America that had not nationalized oil, uh, considering the fact that Bolivia had already had nationalized, Argentina had already nationalized, and Mexico had already nationalized. 
How has the left been functioning in Venezuela in the past decades? Well, it's interesting you point that out because the left really, Venezuela after 1958 entered a very important period. Um, on the one hand, the left was critical in the ouster of Marcos Perez Jimenez. Uh, and on the ground in the 1950s, the groups that opposed the dictatorship were the communists and dissident members of Acción Democrática, that is the Social Democratic Party. Its leadership, though, largely was in exile. And its leadership essentially was maintained by American political institutions. Um, the American Federation of Labor had a very keen interest in maintaining uh, a social democratic alternative in Venezuela. Um, the different social democratic organizations in the U.S. did the same thing. Um, and many of the Acción Democrática uh, representatives actually functioned internationally, supported economically by those institutions. On the ground in Venezuela, however, the, the left uh, and the Social Democrats did forge a degree of unity and did combat and oppose uh, the dictatorship and were critical in its ouster. But as soon as the dictatorship had been ousted, the elites began to regroup um, and the political leadership that had been abroad came back and re reinstated its, its position um, and essentially excluded the left from politics. Um, so you had, after 58, you had several factions occurring within the country. Um, and many tried the electoral arena. Um, they were actually members of Acción Democrática. As the government, Acción Democrática moved more and more to the right. They broke with Acción Democrática. Many of them moved into a guerrilla uh, mode of operation. There was a very strong insurgency in Venezuela that lasted throughout the 1960s. In fact, if you looked at the three countries in Latin America with some of the most active guerrilla movements, it was Venezuela, Colombia, and Guatemala uh, at a time in which the, here you have uh, this pacted democracy, but you also had a left insurgency. By the 70s, um, they had reached an agreement to pacify. They entered electoral arena in politics. Others went into community organizing. Um, and um, they never really, in terms of the electoral arena, ever got more than 4 or 5% at the national level um, in terms of the electoral arena. But that doesn't mean that they didn't continue to organize on the grassroots, in community neighborhoods, in urban areas, in rural experiments, in, in rural areas in, in Western Venezuela. Um, but everything changed with the rise of Hugo Chavez. Um, and we saw a dramatic shift uh, in the role of the left in Venezuela as a result of that. And what was that change? Well, initially, when, when Hugo Chavez appears on the national stage, Many had some distrust um, because there has been historic distrust of military uh, in Venezuela, in Venezuela and in Latin America because they were such a such a bloody role in the past. They had been the principal pillars of of repression. Um, if you looked at Latin America or South America in the 1960s, you saw military dictatorships in Argentina, in Brazil, in Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile uh, by the 1970s and early 80s. Uh, in fact, there were only two countries in South America that weren't under military dictatorship, and that was Venezuela and Colombia. So that there was some regional distrust, um, but again, there was also a, a thirst for, for, for some alternative in Venezuela that wasn't being supplied by the traditional left, and in which many people had lost hope and expectation uh, of the traditional political apparatus. So when Chavez emerges on the scene, um, it left the expectation that some change was coming. Chavez was eventually pardoned by the social, by the Christian Democratic Party or Christian Democratic leadership, Rafael Caldera, and uh, then transformed his movement into an electoral arena. And that, uh, that electoral movement captured the social discontent because by 1980s, uh, many, many felt that this pact of democracy had become calcified. Uh, it was corrupt. Um, it was inefficient. Um, there was growing inequality. Uh, rising poverty. So you had this, this, con this contrast of a, of a oil producing country, uh, that claimed to be the model democracy in Latin America that had access to the Concord connecting Caracas to Paris, that had uh, uh, an upward middle class that was doing relatively well. Uh, and then you had the reality of the people who lived in the poor neighborhoods of Caracas, um, known as the ranchos, um, the cities, the urban population that surrounded the capital and surrounded every major city. So you had that contradiction. And Chavez, in many ways, provided it a hope for many of those people that they had not seen in the past. What did his presidency mean for the country? His presidency meant 
a, a dramatic change from the political arrangements that had governed the country since 1958, a dramatic change, a break from that past. Um, he made no uh, uh, bones about what he planned to do. Um, he did not hide his agenda. He was anti-neoliberal economic policy. He promoted regional integration in Latin America, that is, uh, putting a Latin America agenda uh, on, the, on the front burner uh, of making connections to the countries of Latin America, of creating a, a common market in Latin America, uh, opposition to U.S. policy of free trade in the region, um, and at the same time, very critical of what had been U.S. policy in the past. Um, and that's how he got elected. And he was elected in 1998 when he assumes the presidency. Uh, I'm sorry, when he's elected president, he will assume the presidency in, in 1999 in February. Uh, he had a multi-class movement, that is, disgruntled middle-class members, even disgruntled elites, and a large following among the working, the poor, the marginalized, who had not seen uh, traditional uh, parties such as Acción Democrática or COPE, COPE as an alternative. And he was elected democratically uh, against this very structure. And how did Maduro come to power? Maduro comes to power uh, after Hugo Chavez dies in 2013. Uh, Maduro had been uh, Chavez's foreign minister, uh, but before, be, even beyond, before that, though, Maduro had played an important role. Maduro um, and his, at that time his, his partner Celia Flores, his wife, um, had joined the Chavista movement early on when Chavez was in, who had been jailed. Uh, they sought to defend him uh, uh, in front of the judicial bodies in Venezuela. Um, so he had aligned himself very early on uh, and actually run for deputy, uh, winning a deputy position out of Caracas, uh, and then eventually uh, assuming the position of foreign minister. Um, and Chavez becomes ill um, with some form of cancer. We don't never have been told exactly what kind. Um, and then in a dr dramatic fashion, um, when he's leaving for Cuba for the last time, uh, he says, if I were to die, I would uh, ask my supporters to vote for Nicolás Maduro. And Maduro then is elected as a result uh, of Chavez's death um, in 2013. Um, and those elections were very tight. Uh, Maduro wins by 50.6 against uh, Enrique Capriles Radonsky of 49.1. The Obama, the op opposition did not recognize the results then. The Obama administration did not recognize the results then. Uh, and it was clear that we were on a collision path between the U.S. and the Obama administration around the case of Venezuela uh, and the support for regime change. What have we seen under Maduro's presidency? We hear that he's a dictator starving his people. It's a bit more complicated. Uh, Maduro is not Hugo Chavez. He did not. He was not the organic intellectual that came out of both the military, but also a very popular tradition of politics uh, in Venezuela. Um, and I think in that sense, any effort for him to become Chavism was a mistake. Um, he is a product of the 1960s and 70s, a, a rock and roll, a member of a rock and roll band. He played bass in a rock and roll band. He uh, looked at uh, Middle Eastern mysticism and religions. Um, so he comes from a different background. But he inherits a process that already has problems. Um, when he's elected, uh, by a small margin, the opposition uh, declares uh, that they will not recognize him so that there is an open confrontation with the opposition. Um, and at many times, the opposition will attempt to uh, oust him in 2014 with La Salida, the exit, where there are violent protests in which the middle class neighborhoods um, actually seal themselves off um, and attempted to prevent uh, anyone from trans trans uh, transiting throughout the region. He also has the misfortune of coming to the presidency as the price of oil begins to decline. Um, again, Venezuela depends for about 95 to 98% of its foreign earnings from oil. Um, and, and Venezuela, as, a, as an oil producer, is also an a importer of food products. Uh, since 1935, Venezuela has been a net importer of food so that the, the oil, um, which trickles throughout the entire economy uh, from uh, food subsidies, housing subsidies, educational subsidies, transportation subsidies, is the key 
to Venezuela's economy. And Maduro now faces a, a dramatic decline in the price of oil. Um, as that price declines, uh, we see the beginnings of shortages. Um, we see the beginnings of shortages in food. But we also understand that in the context of that, there's also an economic war going on. That is the private sector, um, which opposed Maduro, uh, is producing less. Uh, the private sector is in some cases hoarding. Uh, I was present uh, in, in the uh, beginning, in the process, um, in periods before elections, and it was always interesting to see how all of a sudden uh, eggs disappeared from the market, milk disappeared from the market, flour to make arepas disappeared from the market. But as soon as the election was over, those products reappeared. So it was obvious that the private sector was hoarding. Now, their argument was that because the government had established price controls, um, that they could not make any profits, so therefore they seized production. But there was obviously an, an economic uh, conflict between the, the, the private sector uh, and the government that, that exacerbated problems in the country, so that less money to import food products, uh, open, open conflict with the opposition and with the private sector, and then the imposition of sanctions. Um, by uh, the same time that Obama administration is recognizing, beginning to recognize Cuba and opening up relations with Cuba, it is also at the same time imposing sanctions uh, on Venezuela uh, and imposing sanctions first of on, on individuals and then gradually on economic institutions and the Trump administration eventually on oil and Citco, which is a Venezuelan subsidiary in the U.S., uh, and then on oil profits as well. That meant that the country could not renegotiate its debt. That meant that the country could not buy capital goods uh, to renovate its oil industry. So we have not only the decline in the price of oil, we also have um, a drop in production uh, because the government is spending less on infrastructure de development and capital goods expenditure uh, so that we begin to see the drop in price of, of, in oil production down to 1 million barrels when at one time it was 3 million barrels. All that together exacerbates the crisis within the country. Um, and by 2015, you begin to see uh, thousands of individuals uh, migrating out of Venezuela to avoid the, the economic conditions. And to clarify, what role exactly do the private sector and government have in food and ensuring the nutrition of the people? Where should blame be placed on these entities? Well, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, I am very critical of the Maduro administration. I think that they're their inability or unwillingness to tackle the exchange rate and to allow it to expand so that we're talking about 50,000 to one, 60,000 to one, um, and those images of, of, of a bag of money to buy a roll of toilet paper uh, really uh, underscored that they simply did not tackle um, the issue of foreign exchange rates. Um, they allowed it to, to expand um, dramatically. Um, I think that they were also economic improvisation on their part um, in not developing a clear economic strategy. Um, and I think that, on the other hand, the private sector, uh, and, and this is important to point out, I think, because many people think, well, Venezuela is socialist. Well, no, Venezuela is a capitalist economy. Um, the fact that the government calls itself socialist or the fact that the government had the, uh, the oil industry had been privatized in 1976, long before Chavez, does not mean the country by itself is socialist. Most production was private. Most production was in private hands. Um, and so was the acquisition of the wealth from that process. Traditionally, what the government did was it provided uh, bolivares, the, the national currency, at a reduce rate so that manu importing manufacturing sector could import goods uh, and then they would resell them in the country. What the, what the private sector began doing in many cases was they would take subsidized bolivares and then buy the products on the international sector uh, and then return and sell them at the inflated price or the inflated cost of the dollars. Um, so they were making a profit on both ends. Or they would take and create what's called uh, empresas de maleta, that is uh, baggage uh, companies or handbag companies in which they would take the money uh, they got on a subsidized rate from the government and then speculate it on the internet on the national market selling the bolivares themselves at a higher rate for them for their for their profit um, so that they weren't importing the foods uh, and that was obviously a bottleneck and there were many bottlenecks like that in the economy that the government could have tackled and did not um, and then I said uh, I underscore the role of sanctions and the importance of sanctions um, and and then limiting uh, the options, the economic options for the country, um, and that aggravated the crisis. And what exactly would it mean for Venezuela to have a genuine socialist government? 
Well, a genuine socialist government would control production, um, would uh, be able to distribute the the, the wealth uh, that it derived from various uh, uh, entities uh, uh, in a more equitable fashion, um, and would actually have control over the economy in ways it does not now. Um, but that's, again, there's a difference between saying that because you have social programs such as subsidized health or subsidized education or subsidized housing, that by itself does not make an economy socialist. Socialist economies are programmed economies in which there is an effort to plan uh, on an ordered fashion production, uh, distribution, uh, and at the same time to assure uh, some level of, of uh, social equity within the process. And you've mentioned racial and class dynamics. What exactly are the racial and class dynamics at play here? Well, this is one of the, the, the large questions, I think, in Venezuela's history. Um, as the nation evolved in the 1940s and 50s, um, we, we saw this, this idea that Venezuela somehow had uh, um, eluded race problems, had resolved race problems in Latin America, that because you had racial miscegenation, that is racial mixing um, on a wide scale, that somehow racism did not exist. Um, and the, 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 uh, the, the, preferred way of describing this was a the myth of café con leche, or the myth of coffee and milk, that somehow Venezuela, because it was mixed, had uh, resolved racial distinctions, when in fact the real question was always, as I argued in my book, um, it was always how much milk was in the coffee. It wasn't about the coffee, it was about how much milk, that is the degree of whiteness, because there was a white dominant aesthetic that, that permeated throughout Venezuelan society, and it's very obvi obvious and evident um, in what kind of images uh, were portrayed in the popular press, in the media, and in the famous Miss Venezuela uh, pageant um, in which uh, women of color were absent. Um, and not only absent by, by exclusion, but absent by design. Um, its organizer uh, actually thought that women of color were not as pretty. Um, and therefore were never present. Um, and racial politics have been one of the dominant features in this entire process. The mere fact that you have token individuals of, of color in positions of power does not mean that a country or a society is not racist. Um, it is still racist um, by its exclusion and by its portrayal and by its ex exhibition of what is the dominant paradigm. And the dominant paradigm in Venezuela historically was always white, it was always European. It was always uh, uh, Anglo-American, Euro-American. Uh, and again, Venezuela has an important immigrant population. It has an Italian population, a Portuguese population, a Lebanese or Middle Eastern population. Um, and again, those populations, in the words of Marcos Perez Jimenez, the dictator from 1948 through 1958, um, their, their being brought into Venezuela was part of his plan to whiten Venezuela. In this sense, Venezuela is not, not different from Argentina or Uruguay or Chile or Brazil that also at the turn of the century 1920, in the 20s thought, sought to whiten its population. That was the same sort of plan, uh, same sort of vision that many elites had in the country. Uh, and I talk about those in my book as well. Could you expand upon that? How exactly did this whitening affect politics throughout the continent? Well, throughout Latin America, um, at the turn of the century, from the 19th century to the 20th century, as liberals came to power, um, and here liberals in the 19th century uh, notion of the concept of the term, not, not liberal in terms of liberal social policy, but rather liberals in terms of uh, uh, free trade, uh, uh, democratic, social democratic or democratic governments. Um, they also began looking at their population and many intellectuals um, identified development, modernity, progress with Europe. Um, and that uh, somehow the Latin American population was deficient, deficient socially. Uh, we got to the point in, in Mexico where uh, Mexican intellectuals argued um, that uh, the Mexican indigenous population was not up to the same level uh, the same rigor uh, as uh, uh, the Europeans because they ate corn and Europeans ate wheat. So they developed concepts and notions of race based on that. Um, in, in Argentina and in Brazil, a large debate, a significant debate about um, whether these the populations, mixed race populations, could actually participate on an equal footing. Um, and when the Argentines talked about bringing in uh, literally hundreds of thousands of immigrants, it was also with a very 
keen idea that somehow the European population would lead to the whitening of the Argentine population and that there would be the trans transmission of new European work values and ideas and concepts. Um, and, and same thing in, in, the, in the case of, of uh, Brazil, uh, where we saw a significant amount of uh, white European migration being brought in um, so that they would actually begin the process of whitening. Uh, and Venezuela was no different, uh, not at the same scale, not at the same level, but the same idea was present. In fact, uh, a very famous Venezuelan intellectual talked about um, the importance of whitening Caracas because it had become too uh, dominated by people of color and that we needed to move populations around uh, Venezuela to ensure uh, the right uh, uh, racial outcome. And how have we seen this play out in recent politics, such as the election in Brazil, and how will that affect what's going on in Venezuela right now? Well, we've had Mr. Bolsonaro, who is the newly elected president of Brazil, make some very outrageous comments about people of color, particularly Afro-Brazilians. We've also seen some of members of his cabinet make some very outrageous comments, racist comments about uh, Afro-Brazilians not needing to go to universities um, or that they, if they do, they should be there to clean the, the buildings or clean the, 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 the classrooms. Um, we've had some very outrageous comments about uh, indigenous peoples uh, and the need to, to, to control the rural areas and not allow uh, territories controlled by indigenous to go to, to waste. So we've seen a whole uh, reversal in many ways. And this is, is a reversal because throughout the 80s and 90s, we saw an upsurge in indigenous movements. We saw an upsurge in Afro-Latin American movements from Brazil, through Argentina, through Chile, uh, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, where indigenous people came onto the national stage. So I think that what's happening in the context of a right upsurge in Latin America, uh, that we've seen in governments in Argentina and in Brazil uh, and in Chile uh, and in Peru and in Ecuador, is an effort to, to rewrite that history, um, to put people back in their place, um, and particularly indigenous Afro-Latinos, uh, Afro-Brazilians, Afro-Latin Americans, uh, and to regain that space, that territory uh, that in many ways had been won as a result of social mobilizing, social organizing, social movements uh, throughout Latin America uh, that we saw in the 80s and 90s. And it was so critical to the rise of the left uh, in the 1990s in Latin America. How would a Juan Guaido U.S.-approved government in Venezuela affect indigenous and Afro-Venezuelan people? Venezuela has several important sources of revenue in the Amazon rainforest area. Um, there, in the, in the northern rim of that territory, are some of the largest oil deposits, crude deposits, um, and then this government has created what it called the Arco Minero, or the the mining arc that's also on the cusp of the Amazon rainforest, um, and that has displaced indigenous population. Uh, I, I I should be pointing out that Maduro's government has not been. Uh, essentially the, uh, a strong ally of environmentalists or even a strong ally of the indigenous who have resisted um, the, the exploitation of the Amazon rainforest. What one, one's concerned about is that facing the economic situation that the country faces, um, that there would be a wholesale effort to try to uh, move into that territory, to the Amazon territory, um, to have greater mineral extraction, uh, gold, cobalt, uh, other uh, precious metals, um, that would eventually continue this process of environmental degradation, um, as it has in every other oil-producing region of Venezuela. One of the legacies of the oil industry has been the complete destruction of environments. Uh, the bottom of Lake Maracaibo, which was the, the heart of oil production throughout much of the 20th century, is completely devastated. Um, the same thing is, is, is happening uh, in the Amazon rainforest around the areas where there is oil production. There really has not been a keen interest uh, in preserving the environment or even in, in, in preserving uh, the conditions that existed there that are the basis of the survival for many indigenous organizations. And that's really the challenge. The country, uh, I, I understand fully that any government in power would need to be able to meet social needs um, and they would tap into these reserves. The question is how to do that, how to ensure the environment, how to ensure the rights of the people who live in those environments um, and not simply exploit them. And how would that, uh, you know, how would that ideal policy, that ideal world, um, how would that play out in Venezuela? 
ideal worlds are difficult to accomplish, but I think the, the critical thing we've learned from other cases is consultation, that there has to be engagement with local communities uh, that are going to be uh, adversely affected by these process, that there has to be a process of consultation. Not what happened, for example, in Ecuador, where you had Texaco and then Mobile coming into territories that where you had large numbers of indigenous communities. Um, and uh, essentially in the aftermath of the exploitation of the oil reserves there or the oil uh, uh, reserves in that region, you have water contaminated, you have forest contaminated, you have increased cancer rates. Um, so you have to figure out how to make this appropriate. It has to be through a process of consultation, direct consultation with the communities that are most adversely affected so that there can be, uh, and then a process by which to ensure the environmental protection uh, and a process to assure that some of the resources from those funds go back into investment in those communities um, to ensure that they also have employment and sustainable employment, not just exploitative employment. And looking at the U.S. and international response, right now, the U.S. is claiming that Maduro is rejecting humanitarian aid, while the Red Cross and U.N. are criticizing the U.S. for politicizing uh, humanitarian aid. What is the truth about humanitarian aid in Venezuela right now? Humanitarian aid, as the U.N. has said, as the Red Cross has said, should not be politicized. Um, that is, um, there is a need in Venezuela for medicines. Um, and I'm, I'm an advocate that medicines need to be imported, need to be brought into the country to deal with the, 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 the important issues of people who are ill and who can't have access to those medicines. Now, what happened at the border in Colombia was clearly an effort at politicizing human aid. Um, there is a notion of a, uh, if you create the context for a humanitarian crisis, then you create the context for a humanitarian intervention. Um, and it's a very, very one, it's very uh, interesting to see Venezuela being targeted for humanitarian uh, aid and a humanitarian crisis, but then a blind eye towards Yemen or a blind eye towards Honduras, a blind eye towards other areas. Uh, and, and it really speaks to the contradiction of U.S. foreign policy in this context. In Venezuela, there is scarcity. There is not famine. Uh, there is not famine. What there is is a galloping inflation of over a million percent. That means that people have less ability to be able to purchase goods and services because from day to day they go up in price. Uh, that's create. That's a major problem. The other one is scarcity, uh, and scarcity there means that that you have bottlenecks in the economy. That you had food distribution in Caracas, but you don't have it in Merida or in Táchira, um, and those need to be addressed and resolved as well. But it's clear that we don't have famine as we typically associate uh, in terms of in terms of people not having anything to eat. Yes, people have lost weight because of the scarcity. Yes, that is a, that is something that is not acceptable and needs to be addressed, but it can't be addressed by militarizing humanitarian aid, politicizing humanitarian aid. If it's going if humanitarian aid is to come, uh, it needs to come through the institutions like the Red Cross, like the UN and others that will not politicize it. And right now, a lot of liberals are calling for, quote, free and fair elections. What do you think about that? I think what's needed in Venezuela is to follow the model that we've seen proposed by Mexico and, Ecuador, and, and Uruguay. That model is a process of negotiations. The starting point of that negotiations cannot be elections. The starting point has to be how do we come to terms with each other? How do we recognize the existence of the other? If the alternative is a winner-take-all strategy, that is, you need to be vanquished for me to come to power, um, that's not going to work in Venezuela. The reality is the opposition is not going to disappear. The Chavistas are not going to disappear. We're not going back to 1998. There is no fantasy Venezuela, um, and model democracy, um, best country in Latin America, all these images that are, are being thrown out there. When we hear, for example, reports in the mainstream media, well, Venezuela had the highest standard of living in Latin America. Yes, but it also had high levels of poverty and inequality, and that's precisely what brought Chavez to power in the first place. So we, if we go back to 1998, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. So what needs to be done is a process of a negotiation um, that engages with all sides, and that maybe elections are an outcome, but with the, the starting point cannot be elections because you're essentially uh, excluding any process of negotiation.
And what do you think the chances are that the opposition will ever come to the table in terms of negotiations? As long as the opposition is dominated by uh, the approach of winner take all, that is, the op- that the Chavistas must be vanquished. Um, that is is a non-starter. I think. I think that's not going to provide the context um, for a an open dialogue, open conversation uh, between opposing sides. There there are signs that some members of the opposition uh, recognize the importance of the Chavistas and how to come to terms. But at this point, uh, with Guaido and Voluntad Popular and Primera Justicia, these are the parties that are dominating the opposition. Um, I don't see a context at the at the moment um, for that to happen. But the longer this drags out, um, because under underscoring the, the issue before us right now is that Guaido and his and his immediate group of supporters that had negotiated uh, much of this support abroad sold it based upon the notion that this would all transform in 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. And that hasn't happened. Um, it's very reminiscent of the, the buildup to the war in Iraq, uh, where you had uh, certain Iraqi exiles telling the U.S. that you'll be welcome in the streets with flowers, that this will be over within 24 hours, that this will be all uh, finished. The reality is quite different. Venezuela is much more complicated than a caricature that's been represented um, and I think that that's part of the problem we're looking at now. Um, that doesn't, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean that people blindly support Maduro. They are very critical of Maduro, um, but they're also not trusting of the opposition because, again, there's been no social agenda, no social program um, from uh, from them. Um, and this, pitching the idea of simply replacing Maduro um, to replace him with what um, and how are social issues going to be confronted so that distrust continues to be there. With all these competing narratives, how should folks in the U.S. who support Venezuelan sovereignty and self-determination be framing this discussion, especially as the conversation grows in electoral politics? and the presidential race? I think that's a very important question because we're seeing a lot of contradictory statements coming out of so-called progressives in Congress and so-called progressives in the U.S. and and from so-called progressive lobbying groups. The reality is that uh, if you support an agenda of regime change, then you're really supporting uh, a return to uh, the kind of policy of big stick diplomacy of U.S. deciding the outcome of elections in Latin America or deciding who becomes president. I think the critical thing is to, to argue against foreign intervention. Um, the critical thing is to say we do not support regime change. Uh, we support a negotiated settlement and we support and we provide the context for that settlement to happen, that the U.S. will not uh, uh, blindly support a group that looks to affect a coup in the country. Um, and that the only solution can be what Mexico has proposed, a recognition of self-determination, a recognition of uh, the autonomy of countries to, to, to develop their own and chart their own course, and a peaceful resolution to any conflict. Those are the principal pillars of the Mexican foreign policy that have been lost for 30 years under the PRI and the PAN uh, and that have been recovered by Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And I think they have to be the pillars that any progressive forces in the U.S. Uh, supports. That doesn't mean you support Maduro. You can be as critical of Maduro as you want, but you have to assume a policy that regime change is a return to the kind of policies the U.S. exercised throughout much of the 20th century um, and that will only create the context for further instability in Latin America and in Venezuela. And what actions can our listeners take to support sovereignty and self-determination? I think they can write all their congresspeople. I think they can they can uh, pressure their congresspeople to adopt a policy of no intervention in, in, in Latin America and in Venezuela in particular in this context. Because again, it's a very slippery slope. Um, and, and understanding the context, Mr. Bolton, John Bolton, the U.S. National Security Advisor, very clearly laid it out in November of 2018 in a conversation in Florida in which he said, look, we're going to go after Venezuela first. And then we're going to go after Cuba. And then we're going to go after Nicaragua. This is about regime change in Latin America. This is about the U.S. re-exercising its, its dominant role in Latin America, recovering markets, recovering political influence, and doing it in the context in which you have a right 
swing in Latin America uh, in the last uh, uh, two or three years. And I think the important thing is to support, again, that self-determination, that autonomy, um, that independence by writing your congresspeople, by supporting your congresspeople and telling them that this is not about regime change. This has to be about self-determination, about sovereignty and about people in that country making their own decisions. And how can folks, what news outlets and people can our listeners follow to get a true sense of what's happening in Venezuela? Um, it's difficult. The U.S., if you read the mainstream U.S. media, you get a sense of the buildup to the war in Iraq. The, dr- the drums of war were beating and beating and beating. They, they, they've uh, become a bit muted now because they also bought into the argument that this was all going to happen in 24 hours and 48 hours and the regime change would be overnight. Um, but I think it's very critical to read... Uh, it depends if they speak Spanish or not. Uh, there are many news sources in Spanish, uh, whether they're in Mexico or they're in Venezuela. There's Venezuelan analysis, which gives you one perspective in the U.S. Um, in English, there are uh, reading uh, alternative uh, blogs, magazines, The Nation, um, reading uh, uh, different authors and, and writers and intellectuals who write about this. Um, I think that's you have to be critical in, in how you assess the materials and ask, the, ask, ask yourself, how is this really advancing the cause of self-determination? How is this advancing the cause of autonomy um, and independence? And how is this advancing the cause of of actually countries making their own determination? Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast and the brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela. Make sure to subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes, Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.